Well, dear friends, our text this afternoon as we hear from the living God in his word is Psalm 95. We are continuing at Christ the King in a five-week series on Psalms this August. This morning we continue in with what is surely one of the most familiar of all the Psalms to you by now, at least if you've been part of Christ the King in the last year and a half. Because Psalm 95 is known as the Venite, which is from the Latin for O Come. And if you've been in our services since March of 2020, it is a regular part of the Anglican morning prayer service that we said for many months on end at Christ the King. It's not just Anglicans who use Psalm 95 in their services. As one uh, commentator puts it, from primitive times, the Christian church has widely used this psalm as a call and a guide to worship. As you no doubt heard when Holly read it earlier in the service, the psalm rather clearly divides in two between the third and the fourth lines of verse 7. The first part of the psalm in verses 1 to 7c is the famous call to worship. And it's a two-part call to worship. The opening words, O come, appear twice in the psalm. At the beginning in verse 1, and then again in verse 6. So what we have in Psalm 95 are two calls to worship, each with its own theme, before the psalm changes tone and genre to what is essentially a prophetic rebuke, reflecting the voice of God to the current generation. So this is the structure we'll follow this afternoon as we look briefly at this psalm today. In verses 1 to 5, we have a call to worship the Creator God. Then in verses 6 to 7c, the third line of verse 7, we have a call to worship the covenant God. And then finally in verses 7d, the last line of 7 to 11, we have what I'll call a challenge to live in light of our worship. Two calls and a challenge is the simplest way to put it, I guess. And for many of you, it'll be familiar ground we're covering this afternoon, but that's okay because understanding the content of Psalm 95 isn't the difficult part. It's living it out. And it's for that that we specially ask for the Holy Spirit's presence with us as we look now at this brief psalm together. Stephen, can you just tell me whether I'm working with this mic or this mic? The headset? feel so locked into being right in front of it then. Okay. So we begin in verses 1 to 5, where we find in Psalm 95 a call to worship the Creator God. Now, we have little or no sense of what the occasion of this psalm may have been originally. It's possible the psalm was composed in response to some act of deliverance by the Lord for His people. That would be logical, seems, given what verse 1 says. Oh, come, the psalm begins, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
By my count, it's 19 times that the book of Psalms speaks of God as a rock. And there are different nuances to the idea, but I think Psalm 18 seems to be a close parallel to what Psalm 95 intends here when speaking of the rock of our salvation. Listen to verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. There in Psalm 18, the rock connotes both strength and security. The rock is the psalmist's deliverer as well as his fortress. And salvation comes because of the strength and security provided by the rock. Or again, at the end of Psalm 18, in verses 46 to 48, we read, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. So it seems to make good sense to assume that perhaps originally Psalm 95 was composed in response to some such act of deliverance. We have no idea what that might have been, and that's not really the point. The point is that any time people of God experience the deliverance of the Lord, their response is to be joyous thanksgiving. As one commentator puts it, we greet him with unashamed enthusiasm as our refuge and rescuer. The full-throated cries urged in verses 1 and 2 suggest an acclamation fit for a king who is the savior of his people can't miss the joyous part of it, at least not as the ESV translates it, because it's there in both verses 1 and 2. Let us make a joyful noise. That includes singing, of course. The very first thing the psalmist urges us to do in verse 1, and the very last thing that's urged of us in verse 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, the psalmist begins, and then let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, he concludes. But of course, it doesn't have to all be just singing. The language suggests a kind of outburst of vocal praise to Yahweh. Shout aloud, you might translate it. Declare publicly and vocally your praise of God. And note especially the attitude or the motivation that's behind it all in verse 2. We're to come into his presence, into the presence of he who is the rock of our salvation, with thanksgiving. I think it's right to say that all worship is an expression of thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving is the fundamental way in which we are to relate to God. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what is the ground for this joyous thanksgiving that is to characterize our worship? We find it in verse 3. For 
the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The nations of the ancient Near East had their deities, of course. There were different gods for different peoples and different geographical areas and different cosmic regions and different aspects of life even. But the psalmist says, Yahweh is a great king above all gods. And what is it that establishes God as king over all the universe here and elsewhere in the scriptures? Well, the answer is creation. God's greatness and rule as king is rooted ultimately in the fact that it was he who created everything. That's the point here in verses 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth. Verse 4 begins. The heights of the mountains are his also. Both belong to God as creator, and so also the sea is his, the psalmist says, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. As the progenitor of all things, he is also the ruler of all things. The depths of the earth were often associated with the underworld, the domain of shadowy powers in the ancient Near East. The heights of the mountains were thought to be the dwelling places of the gods. The psalmist asserts that even these extremes belong to Yahweh the Creator, and in turn his ownership of them implies his absolute power in every realm. Simply put, throughout the scriptures, creation is the grounds for the kingship of God, beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The point then is that he rules it all, which of course means that any deliverance of his people and any work of salvation is owing to his universal sovereignty and power acting on behalf of his people, which is why there can be only one appropriate response from them at the beginning of the psalm, joyous thanksgiving. But there's another dimension to the call to worship in Psalm 95 that we come to in verses 6 and to 7, at least the first three lines of 7. Whereas verses 1 to 5 are a call to worship the Creator God, verses 6 to 7c are a call to worship the Covenant God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, verse 6 says. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Now, it may seem natural or easy, I think, to read the word maker there in verse 7 to mean the same thing that we just talked about in verses 3 to 5, right, with the concept of creation. Well, it is a kind of creation, but in fact, it's not exactly the same point that the psalmist is making here, because this is not about the Lord making us in the way that the Lord created the sea and the dry land. When the Bible talks about the Lord as the maker of his people, the emphasis is almost always on the fact that the Lord is the one who set up a covenant relationship with his people. He made them a people by instituting a covenant with them, in other words. And the way we know that that's what the psalmist is talking about here is by reading verse 7. Because there the psalmist says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. 
So you hear the relational emphasis of those lines. And in fact, if you've read enough of the Old Testament, what you hear is a clear echo of what's sometimes called the covenant formula. The covenant formula is this basic declaration, the basic promise that the Lord makes over and over again throughout the Old Testament scriptures and the New, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And it's all directly linked to the covenant. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 to 19, Moses says to the people, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. So that, in other words, when Psalm 95 verse 7 says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, it's speaking in the language of covenant. Recognizing that the God who delivered his people from Egypt was their God and that they were his people who were to live in covenant obedience with him, to him. It may help to look at another very well-known psalm on this point. Similar concepts are at work in Psalm 100. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of that psalm first and consider how close they are in content to Psalm 95. Psalm 100 begins, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And then here's verse 3 of Psalm 100. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. And what does it mean to say God made us and we are his? Listen to the rest of verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Not only has God created the whole world, he's made his people. He's entered into covenant with them. And they are the sheep of his pasture. You could say the point is that God is the one who brought them into being as a covenant people with all that that covenant entailed. You heard it earlier from Deuteronomy. There were statutes and rules to be kept with all their heart and with all their soul. Not because keeping his commandments would get them into the covenant, but as an expression of the covenant relationship that God himself had established with them. Which is why, while joyous thanksgiving was the primary characteristic of the first call to worship in Psalm 95, here in verse 6 we can say, that the primary characteristic of worship in view is humble submission. The people are summoned to show deference to the Lord, their maker. Let us worship and bow down, the psalmist says. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The call is for a concrete act of obeisance, that this 
God, the indisputably sovereign God of the universe, is Israel's God. And so they were to show their deep respect for the Lord, the king who had made them his people, delivering them and establishing a covenant with them. It's worth pausing for a moment, I think, to ask whether those two things we've considered now, joyous thanksgiving and humble submission, in fact shape our worship today. Because fundamentally, we are in the same position as Israel was. We're the covenant people of God now. The scriptures teach that. We are those whom Paul, in Galatians 6, verse 16, calls the Israel of God. We've all experienced, both individually and as a church, that God is the rock of our salvation. And through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we know, we studied Hebrews for, for years, we know we're the people of the new covenant. We know that the Lord is our maker. So we can ask, our joyous thanksgiving and humble submission reflected in our worship. I think they are, I hope they are, in terms of the design of our services at Christ the King. I try to make them part of the service at Christ the King, but maybe go a little deeper than that. Can those two things be found in our own hearts as we come to worship the Lord? Now, there are other aspects of worship, I know. Sometimes silence is what is called for, not joyful noise. Sometimes lament is the proper response to the Lord concerning our circumstances or the persistence of evil in the world around us. I'm not in any way trying to say that other emotions and other expressions aren't important. We see them in the Psalms. We see them in other places in Scripture. But on the whole, I think it's true to say that biblical worship has two essential components, thanksgiving and submission. Now, of course, the real way to know whether those two aspects of worship are, in fact, operative in our lives, both individually and as a church, is then to take up the challenge of verses 7d to 11 of Psalm 95. There's a lot that can be said about this third part of our psalm today, which I've described as a challenge to live in light of our worship. It's not hard to hear, sense the difference in this third stanza from the first two. The genre is different and so is the tone. Instead of a summons to worship followed then by a hymn of praise to the Lord, what we have here is essentially a prophetic rebuke. It's a quote from the Lord himself spoken by the psalmist. Because after the opening words of 7D, today, if you hear his voice, well then, what the psalmist gives us is his voice. Do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, 
when your fathers put me to the test. You hear how it shifts into the Lord speaking? When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Now time is running short, so allow me to focus our study of this part of the psalm by asking now the question, what was that test referred to in verse 9? Because whatever the essence of that test was, that's what the psalmist is saying the people of his day must avoid, right? And by implication, it's what we must be careful to avoid as well as the psalm comes to us today. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa, when your fathers put me to the test. Well, the reference to note here or to turn to if you want to read it, the reference here is to Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read it, but first, just the rapid context of Exodus 17. Exodus 12 is the exodus of the people from Egypt, which of course followed the ten plagues from the Lord against Egypt and Pharaoh. And the Passover lambs were killed, and the firstborn of Israel doesn't die, as the firstborn of Egypt did, and the Lord is then present with his people in the pillars of the fire and the cloud, you remember. And Exodus 14 is then the people crossing the Red Sea, and you know the story, they're trapped, and Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, you only have to be silent. And then the staff goes up, and the waters part, and the people pass through on dry ground. Then Exodus 15 is the great song of Moses, and at that point, we get the sense that the people are all in. Exodus 14, verse 31 says, Israel believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But by the end of Exodus 15, as the people depart from the Red Sea and are on their way to Sinai, something begins to happen. People start grumbling. And there's some of that all the way through Exodus 16, and then here we are in Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, Meribah means quarreling, and because they tested the Lord, Massah means testing, 
They tested the Lord by saying, end of verse 7, Is the Lord among us or not? So do you see what the test is? It's right there at the end. It says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, the people had experienced all that the Lord did for them in saving them from the plagues. They saw all the power of the Lord working on their behalf in the exodus and the pillars of fire and cloud. They crossed the Red Sea, and even after they'd grumbled, the Lord had provided them with food and with with water, with food, the manna, chapter 16, and now again with water from the rock. And then here they say, is the Lord among us or not? Instead of trusting the Lord, they call the whole plan into question. Or in other words, what they're doing is questioning or testing Yahweh's character by questioning his intent and purpose for his people. And the point is that what happened there in Exodus 17 becomes characteristic of that whole generation. At least three more times in the Pentateuch, we explicitly get this same thing. That was the first incident at Massa and Meribah in Exodus 17. Then second is the rebellion following the report of the spies who entered the promised land in Numbers 14. And then third, there's the rebellion in Numbers 20. Once again, over lack of water in the desert. And then fourthly, in Numbers 21, we see another rebellion over food and water in the hardship of the desert wanderings. And in each of those four cases, in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 14 and 20 and 21, what you find is that the people all ask whether Yahweh had in fact brought them out of Egypt with the intent of letting them die in the desert even though they'd seen the Lord's work. Which means that the point, the point is, as Psalm 95 verse 10 says, it is. They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. They never fully accepted the goodness of God's character, despite all the evidences he gave them despite being given every evidence of God's care and keeping, that generation continued to question the fundamental goodness of his nature. Therefore, verse 11 says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. How could it be otherwise? They didn't know the ways of the Lord. They can't then enter the Lord's rest. And the point you see is that they didn't respond in joyous thanksgiving and humble submission. Precisely the opposite. And it wasn't like this was a one strike and you're out deal either. We see this again and again and again and again. In fact, we don't even know about it all. But even in Numbers 14, when Moses pleads for the people after they rebel, following the report of the spies that had gone into the land, do you remember what the Lord says? Numbers 14, verse 20. Truly, as I live, he says, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times. Ten times? We don't know about ten times. We only know about a couple of them. 
ten times. This is just Numbers 14. There's more to come. And have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Surely this is a sign that what the psalmist said was happening was happening. The people were hardening their hearts. And the whole point is we need to do the opposite of that, brothers and sisters. Which means we need to persistently come to the Lord, our creator king and our covenant maker, with thanksgiving and submission. It was because the desert generation explicitly and continually denied God's good character that they were excluded from entry into the land as a place of rest. And it showed up in their disobedience. And if you remember, according to Hebrews 3 and 4, we face the prospect of a similar fate if we allow sin to harden our own hearts. After quoting the third stanza of Psalm 95, Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day. Well, I don't know why this never occurred to me before, but it occurred to me this week that maybe we don't need to wonder what exhortations the author of Hebrews had in view. They're right here in Psalm 95. We say to one another, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.